I think anywhere you live, you can make your world pretty small. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if that's your tendency or if if that's what you choose to do. But you can also make it really huge by getting to know more about your neighbors and where they came from, why they came here and what their life, what their lives have been like here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's so many ways to experience this beautiful place. And I think archives and places like museums and libraries help make it possible to make your world larger and see things from a different perspective. That was Julie Varee, the community outreach archivist at the Anchorage Museum. So much of her life has been dedicated to helping others. She grew up in a household back in Gary, Indiana, that put a lot of energy into philanthropy. In fact, her earliest memory is of tagging along with her mom and her grandmother to help the elderly people in her neighborhood. That sense of purpose and charity would define her professional life well into adulthood. Julie got out of philanthropy and development at 60 years old and began pursuing another career with the Anchorage Museum. The first exhibition she worked on was Black Lives in Alaska, Journey, Justice, Joy. It's told through archival photos and collected materials and showcases the richness and resilience of Black Lives in Alaska. Julie says that exhibitions like this one can help people be more open to the stories of other people's lives and experiences. That their way of experiencing the world is not the only way, or the best way, or even the right way to experience the world. So here she is, Julie Varee. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum. Dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. So something that stuck out to me while I was preparing for this conversation was how much your life has been dedicated to philanthropy. Was your family or your parents philanthropic when you were growing up or or where does that come from? Oh, definitely. My grandparents and my mom, who I uh, lived with, I lived with my mom and her parents and they were always doing something, um, you know, raising money for something, um, giving to neighbors, there was just a real sense of community in this neighborhood I lived in, which was an all-Black neighborhood in Gary, Indiana. And, um, you know, this was a middle-class Black neighborhood, and everyone was always trying to help each other and help people who had less in the community. So, yeah, I'm sure that's that's where a lot of that came from. And my being attracted to that first career I had in philanthropy and development. And what did the philanthropy that you grew up with, what did that look like? Um, It was a lot of door-to-door, actually. It was door-to-door collecting, you know, for big organizations like the Heart Association or Cancer Associate Cancer Society, mm-hmm. um, organizations like that. And then Girl Scouts I did. And then, you know, just more personal 
philanthropy in the neighborhood. Like if someone was ill, you took them food, you made sure they didn't need money for something. Um, you know, it was philanthropy on all levels. And then giving and belonging to large um, organizations like the NAACP and um, civic organizations. So it was on many levels. And I think I benefited from having two, well, three generations in the household because um, their philanthropy might have been a little different at different times. Um, so I saw different forms of philanthropy as I was growing up. Which one do you feel like resonated with you the most? Hmm. I think the personal um the personal philanthropy that happened between neighbors and just in the neighborhood. Our neighborhood was pretty tight. People knew each other and knew when someone had a need. Mm -hmm. And I've never forgotten that, even though I haven't lived in a lot of places as an adult where that's actually happened now that I think about it. Um, but that was really influential to me. And I was always drawn to that, just being aware of when someone needed something before they had to ask you. And what brought you to Alaska? My first husband was in the army. He was a linguist and we actually thought we were going to Germany. We were living in Monterey California, one of the most beautiful places on the planet, I think. And mm -hmm. um, we were waiting for his orders and we thought it was going to be Germany. So I was um, taking German lessons and <laughs> and uh, we were all prepared for that. And I was working at the Monterey Bay Aquarium at the time. And I remember my um, ex-husband, Jeff, calling from downstairs and I came down from my office and he was pacing in front of the uh, aquarium. He was really upset about being sent to Anchorage. And I thought, oh, you know, this could be a pretty cool adventure. It wasn't on my list of places to go. So I was pretty excited about it, uh, actually. And eventually he got excited about it, too. So um, he had three years, I think, in the Army and... Uh, then went into teaching. So that brought us up here. And my first job was at the Cancer Society as the development person. So, you know, I'm trying to think of, of something because, you know, I ha now I have all of these like different questions <laughs> kind of swirling around in my head, but I think I'm going to go with, you know, um, you and your husband were under the impression that you were going to Germany. You know, yeah. and, and here comes this curveball that's Alaska. <laughs> yeah. And now, you know, you both are coming to Alaska and you're at the Cancer Society. I mean, wh where's your where's your mind at? You know, are you <laughs> are you sad that you're not in Germany or are you happy with, you know, where you are or what? You know, I was pretty open to wherever, you know, so I was fine coming here. I, you know, I had been excited about. Um, living in Europe. I'd only been to Europe once at that time, and I, you know, wanted to explore more. And so, you know, any disappointment I had was kind of pushed aside by the reality of this is where you're going, and this could be a really cool place too. And then 
Of course, the moment I saw it, I drove up from um, Monterey and uh, Jeff, my ex-husband, went ahead of me Mm -hmm. for about a month ahead of time. But I drove up and I wanted to stop in San Francisco and see my friends and do um, maybe the last Halloween I would do in San Francisco because Mm -hmm. there's no Halloween that compares, I had decided. So I drove up and stopped there for Halloween. And then I drove, um, I stopped again in Seattle to see some friends. And then I got on the ferry to Haines and it was just so beautiful starting even then. And I met these two women on the ferry. One was coming up to take a teaching job in Fairbanks and the other had lived in Anchorage for many years, but she had left for a couple of years to take care of her mother in Texas. So she was moving back and this woman should have worked for the tourism bureau because she was so hot on Alaska and so happy. (laughs) She was so glad to be moving back and she only had great things to say. So we befriended each other, the three of us on the ferry, and then we drove together um, to Toke where the one woman split off from us, but I followed the other woman all the way in. And I remember um, getting off the ferry and driving and seeing this wildlife, like seeing an owl Mm -hmm. for the first time, not in the zoo. You know, it was just incredible. And the it was bad visibility. We had this, we hit this storm. And I remember we had to stop and spend the night. I think it was, I think we had passed Destruction Bay or something. And we ended up having to spend the night. And um, that was kind of an adventure. And uh, it was just a great, a great drive to make. Um, I remember we were um, entering Canada and I had this uh, stuffed bear, this teddy bear that my dad had given me for some reason um, that year, the Christmas before he had given my sister and me toys. So he had given me this bear from um, some PBS show or something. Aloysius was the bear's name. And I had put the bear on the passenger seat to drive all the way up with me, you know, just for luck. And I remember crossing the border into Canada and the the um, the border patrol there saying, young lady, there's I'm not going to find cocaine in that bear, am I? <laughs> and I said, I said, absolutely not. And my dad gave it to me. So you can't cut it open. You just have to trust me. So um, it was just a great trip. And Uh, This friend of mine had given me these cassette tapes, so I had a cassette tape player in my car. Um, This was 88, 1988, and uh, um, uh, she gave me these shoeboxes full of these cassette tapes, and it was Clan of the Cave Bear, and I listened to it all the way. I think I finished it in Eagle River that book, so so it was you know it was a great trip and. You know, I met friends and, um, you know, so I kind of forgot about Germany. I was glad to be coming to Alaska and having this new adventure. That's so funny you just said that because (laughs) I was just about to say, you know, you were happy to be on this new adventure. Yeah. 
do you feel like you're good with just going with the flow? Yeah, I, I am usually, I really am. Um, I always think there's something coming that I may not have expected, but it could be really good or it could be really sucky, but you know, it it may (laughs) just be, it may just suck for a moment or something, you know? So yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, um, flexible and, um, I try to look forward to what's coming. I feel like that's a good tagline just for life in general is, you know, it could just suck for a moment. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And somehow in you, you have to believe, okay, this is just this moment, you know, this is this moment in time and it's not going to last forever. Well, if it's good or bad. So you have to really savor it if it's great. And if it's the opposite, there's something in you that has to believe you're going to get through it and, and it's not going to last forever. Yeah. Yeah, that that's a really special uh, outlook on life because I I feel like um, maybe myself included sometimes where you really have to kind of fake it till you make it, yeah. you know, f- just <laughs> fake the happiness until the happiness becomes actually real. Right. Um, but it sounds like you know you're you're predisposed to just looking on the bright side. I hope so. I you know we all have challenges. <laughs> You know, we all have things happen in life, but I do, I do try to maintain some sense of hope and optimism. And I think, you know, if the last, well, speaking for myself, I'll speak from the I, since 2015, you know, politics has been really rough for me. And Mm -hmm. so I, I try to apply that optimism that, you know, things swing back and forth and, so eventually things are going to feel better. Um, and I think that that has served me well to keep me from, you know, just wanting to open a vein. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, I think it's important to try to cultivate that harder at sometimes than others, obviously. I wonder if you feel like it's easier now to... Um feel that way because you know you've had so many years to kind of practice and and also you know lived experience like things will get better yeah i mean i'm 63 and you know so obviously i've had great times you know great periods of time time in my life and times that have been really challenging and i think you get to the point where you realize oh i'm resilient Um, I'm Mm -hmm. resourceful. I have friends. I have family. You know, you try to maintain those networks of support and and support others. And I think you learn from that that, you know, you're really you're really better prepared than you might think in the beginning to get through whatever and to be able to look forward. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm I'm also wondering um, and this this question kind of goes back to your childhood and, and possibly, you know, those three generations of philanthropy in your household. Mm -hmm. Um, do you have any early experiences with helping others that you feel like maybe help lead you to where you are now? Hmm. Um, 
Well, you know, in our neighborhood, it was a pretty established neighborhood. So there were lots of um, elderly people in the neighborhood. And I just remember my mom and I trying to do all we could. You know, I was tagging along basically, but she would do all she could to one, be there for my grandparents, but also their friends who were elderly people in the neighborhood. And um, so I think those are my youngest memories are just tagging along with her when she would check on an elderly neighbor or, you know, take food or, you know, just check on people. Um, so I would say, yeah, I think th those are my earliest, that's my earliest memory from my childhood is just kind of tagging along and watching what she and my grandmother did for other people. Mm -hmm. Okay. So getting back to Alaska. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you're in Alaska. It's 1988 or 1989. I think it was 1988. That It was the very end of 88 because I remember doing um, Halloween before I came up. So it's probably November when I got here. It was crazy to drive that Alcan in November, but we did it. Oh, I bet. You know, every time that <laughs> I've, I've driven it and I've driven it twice now, um, mm -hmm. it's the summertime. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of crazy. And that when I got here, people were asking me, did you have chains for your tires? And I was like, what? No. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was, uh, now when I think about it, I'd love to drive it again. I've never driven it again, but I'd love to do it in summer and, and, uh, you know, experience that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what was Alaska like? back in 1989 or 88? I don't know if it was, well, maybe it was less diverse or people seemed more divided in their parts of town. You know, I can't, I, I don't see it as being truly very different from now when I think about it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I always worked at nonprofits, so I got a chance to um, work with people from all over town, but I don't know if I think it's, it's, I don't know if I feel that big difference uh, from 1988, 1989, when I first got here. Um, some of the things that impressed me then still impress me now, mm -hmm. like the, you know, coming from well, I lived in Washington, D.C. right when I got out of school, and then I moved to Monterey. And um, then coming here, I thought there was just this um, huge opportunity for women here and women business owners. Um, and I remember thinking it was kind of a, a good in-between, um, between D.C., and the pace of that and the just the culture there and then Monterey, which was kind of it was beautiful, but not that exciting. OK, you know, there were it was touristy kind of. And I thought here it was kind of an in between because there's such a strong sense of community here with the tourism mm -hmm. uh, and with a lot of visitors coming off and on. But still that strong sense of community and people being really proud of where they live and 
trying to take advantage of opportunities here. I still see that. And I saw that then and thought that was one of the best things about where I lived in Alaska. Mm -hmm. So just now you mentioned that you recognize that there was a big opportunity for women business owners in Alaska. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to let you know that my mom would have been one of them. Oh, you know, really? She, yeah, she she yeah. owned a uh, a gym over on Muldoon oh, wow. back um, before I was born. So that would have been 1988. So you know, previous or prior to 1988, she was she was a uh, she owned a gym oh, over wow. there. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've met I met so many women here who just had an idea or decided to strike out on their own after working in larger companies. And I remember thinking that was really cool. It's something I had not seen as much um, in my baby adult and careerhood in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. um, and even in Monterey. Um, and so, yeah, I've always thought that was just a great thing about living here. I wonder if you've if you've ever thought about maybe why that is, you know, why was Alaska, you know, in the late eighties, um, maybe why did it nurture more opportunity for women in business? I think, you know, people who come here, they're, they're pretty ready for, they're ready for an adventure or they're, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're ready to try something. There's something about the landscape that, that feels limitless. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how to verbalize that, but I, I've always felt that, that there's something about the way it feels to live here. Like there's just possibilities. And I, um, I think people just who come here and stay have that in common, that sense of possibility and openness and adventure. So I think that is a big part of it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to switch gears a little bit here to talk about an exhibition at the Yay. Anchorage Museum. <laughs> <laughs> How much, if at all, do you think that your upbringing informed your input while working on the Black Lives in Alaska Journey Justice Joy Exhibition? Well, I was really lucky to have grown up in an all-black neighborhood, and I went to an all-black elementary school um, before I went to junior high and high school, which were in predominantly white schools. Um, and I think because of that, uh, and living with different generations, I appreciated that sense of history and knowing black history, knowing your community, mm -hmm. and feeling pride in it, and trying to preserve that history and pass it on to other generations and also educating people outside of the black community about the accomplishments and achievements of black community members. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, at my elementary school, we sang the black national anthem in the mornings and we had a principal who had gone to Tuskegee Institute and who told us all about that and that history. And my grandparents, you know, my grandmother was born in 1901 and my grandfather in 1908. And, you know, so they had been through it all. You know, I 
remember a lot of conversation, some of which I wasn't supposed to overhear, but I did, about the struggles they had and their families had Mm -hmm. um, growing up in um, Pennsylvania and Southern Indiana. And so I appreciated knowing that and understanding them through that lens. And so working on the exhibition um, and being part of that team and working on an exhibition for the first time ever because I had been in philanthropy for so long, Mm -hmm. um, it was just thrilling to be part of that and to know that this is a way we're going to start talking about black history in this community and connect with all these people that have been part of it. Um, so I think that that helped me be extra excited about it. I was already excited, but just having that background where I knew that people had so much to share um, was uh, was a big part of it for me. Mm-hmm. So this was the first exhibition you were a part of? Yeah, um, because, you know, and I used to be so jealous. I tell my colleagues this all the time. You know, I would have donors come and we'd do a tour of an exhibition. The curators here have always been just amazing at um, helping you uh, help donors experience the exhibitions. So the head of the exhibitions team, Ryan Kinney, and all of the exhibition curators, most recently Fran Dubrock, um, would give tours for uh, donors. And, you know, I'd be along and I'd be so jealous that they actually got <laughs> to put these things together and they knew the exhibition inside out and their ideas were there, you know, their creativity about how to communicate something and put it together. And then... Um, you know, they got to touch things, which I always was jealous of, too, when I would take people on tours and the people who worked with the collections and the materials that would come into the exhibitions were handling these things and really getting to know the materials up close. And um, so for me to be a part of this was just such a gift. Um, and I it never got old. It never gets old. Uh, for me. So I hope I get the opportunity to do that again. Can you tell me about the work you did on the exhibition? Um, I worked with the curator to, I worked with Fran and um, Cody to um, support a community advisory group. So we had four community advisors, um, Celeste Uh, from Alaska Black Caucus, Cal Williams, who is really the archivist for the Black community here. He's really the storyteller and the historian for the Black community. Mm -hmm. Um, Jovelle Rennie, who is a local photographer, Mm -hmm. and um, Natasha Webster, who's a visual artist from the Black community. And it was great because they all brought their own uh, contributions and their own way of seeing things to that advisory group. So I was able to help support them and their work and listen to what they thought would be important about the exhibition, uh, including the look and feel of it. That was really the, the big job of the advisory 
group was to help the museum think about how people should feel when they come through this and what should it look like, what colors would what colors would excite people and engage them. And then I was able to work closely with them and with others in the community to design programming that was in connection with the exhibition. And that was the greatest part uh, because it has helped my work as an outreach archivist, so outside of the exhibition, to connect with people in the community who are doing amazing things. And we were able to help lift their voices through museum programming, which, you know, I mean, this is during the pandemic, right? So it was virtual, it was all virtual, um, but it worked really well. What were those conversations like surrounding what the exhibition should feel like? Oh, you know, my favorite story from that is Tasha, Natasha Webster, the uh, visual artist who said, you know, we should use the Fenty Cosmetics palette and it should be skin tones, different skin tones of black people. And that just blew us away. <laughs> we just thought that was so amazing. And so the outer walls of the exhibition, the large walls where the archival materials were, that was from that palette of skin tones. Mm -hmm. And then um, another person said, well, I think all those browns are great, but there should be some color in there. It needs to be more colorful. And so uh, the design team here uh, worked in some colors on these pillars that are around in the atrium um, because the photographs were all black and white. Most of them were black and white. And so that was great. And then another fa another favorite story of mine from that was um, this discussion about engaging the black community more at the museum and someone saying, well, people don't come here because they don't see themselves here. And I really thought about that. And when we talked to the design team, I said that I was talking about that people not feeling like they don't see themselves here. So the design team worked in a mirror element in the what anchored the exhibition this the information part that you start with in the exhibition that explained it and mm -hmm. so it was two it was it's a, was a square structure in the middle of the atrium and two sides of it were mirrors with the name of the exhibition on them and the great thing was seeing all these people and their families take pictures in front of that mirror um so that was a really memorable thing that came, you know, from a conversation with the um, advisory group. And then, you know, the advisory group really helped uh, us connect to their networks. So um, if I was putting a program together, um, one of them, one of the first ones was on covering the Black Lives Matter protests in Anchorage. And mm -hmm. so I started with Jovell because he had taken photos there and some of his photos were in the exhibition, but he connected me to all these other people who had covered the um, protests from different perspectives. And so that was great because the advisors, you know, to them, it was no big deal, but 
to me, to try to make those programs meaningful, um, that was invaluable from them, um, you know, to have that, that access to their connections. And then, you know, when we do these virtual programs, there was always a moderator and the moderators now are kind of a pool of moderators for other things. So it doesn't have to be a program about the black community. You know, we know you're a great moderator and now you're on our list. Um, so that, that's been really, really great too. So the programming was a, a really great entryway to connect with different communities around Anchorage. And I think that made the exhibition experience a lot richer. You know, this process sounds like it involves a lot of networking mm-hmm. throughout the community. And I, and I feel like it really lends itself to a living exhibition rather mm-hmm. than something that's, that's maybe a little bit more static or stagnant. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I think, um, you know, there were, and we'll continue this, there are a lot of different ways to have those conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can come in and look through the exhibition and kind of, you know, guide yourself through it. Uh, but then the context and and expanding it to community members who weren't featured in the exhibition, you know, because were, these were archival photos and Part of the point was that we're trying to build the archives. We didn't have a lot of photographs and stories already in the archives here. Um, that's the work that I'm doing, trying to build the archives so that they're, we're filling in the gaps of stories of communities that aren't represented mm-hmm. through the archives. And so um, we couldn't feature everyone who's been so instrumental in black history in Alaska. So we could build, we could include people in other ways. For example, we had, um, you know, we do these bike tours in the summer, the programs team here does bike tours. And so we did two black history bike tours um, during the summer when the exhibition was up. And that put us in touch with some other people who were, you know, very important in the black community and in the history of Anchorage and Alaska, but we didn't have photos of them or their stories. And so because of that, uh, one example is Judge Larry Card, who was part of um, one of the bike tours. We stopped at the um, office where Uh, Ashley Dickerson had her law office. And so Judge Card was there to tell that story. And as a result, he brought, um, he started his personal collection here in the archives because we made that uh, connection with him through programs. So um, that was really great. And, you know, and then it led to other conversations because something might come up in one program and you think, oh, that's a that's another conversation we should have. Who can help us have that conversation? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, the programming really led to a lot and has meant more collections coming into the archives because of that networking.
what was it like collecting all of those materials, like archival photos for the exhibition? Um, that was really fun. I have to admit, I didn't have a lot to do with that because, okay. you know, I'm a baby archivist. I'm an old baby archivist. <laughs> and so, you know, I've only, I only, um, I started this job in 2020 and I finished my degree in, um, 2021. And so I'm new to relatively new to archival work. So there are amazing archivists here. There always have been. And so um, they really worked with Fran and um, another woman on her team, Alice, who um, researched other archives across the state because we didn't have enough here. Mm -hmm. But the archivists who work here knew some of the collections we had. You know, they know the collections really well. So they knew what we had and knew how to help fill in parts of the story that we'd have to go to other archives around the state to get photos and materials. Um, so that was an interesting process for me to observe uh, since I couldn't really be a part of it. But there was one collection that I was a big part of, and this was thrilling for me. My, um, I've told this story so many times. My sister and brother-in-law moved to Atlanta last year, mm -hmm. and they were at a farmer's market in Atlanta, and there was this couple um, who are famous for this walnut taco meat and walnut pate right they're like all plant-based right yeah and so the the guy sheldon fleming uh was there with his wife selling this walnut stuff and my sister and brother-in-law are plant-based too eat plant-based diet and so my brother-in-law started talking to the guy because he had on a, a cap that said alaska mm -hmm. and so Eventually, my brother-in-law, who can talk to anyone, he has this great big personality, he said, what's, what's with the Alaska cap? And the guy <laughs> said, well, I was born in Alaska, and I was born in Anchorage, and um, my dad was in the, in the military there. And um, so he was there in the 50s, and then we moved back in the 60s, and we left right after the earthquake, the big um, earthquake in the 60s. So they were here till 65. And so he said, my dad has a huge collection of photos and home movies from then. And my brother-in-law's ears perked up. And he said, well, you know, my sister-in-law works in the archives at the Anchorage Museum. And they're always looking for collections like that mm -hmm. of photographs. And Sheldon Fleming said, yeah, because we didn't know what to do with all this stuff. So my my brother-in-law gets home that night and texts me all about this. And he said, you should talk to this guy, right? And I said, absolutely. And so I got in touch with Sheldon and his father, Samuel Fleming, who's still living. He's 90 years old now. Um, they have a collection now in the archives, and it's photographs from... Fairbanks in the 1950s and then Anchorage in the 1960s. And one of those photographs was this was a floor to ceiling image in the um, exhibition. It was a photograph of their mother, Margaret, who has passed. Uh, but just two weekends ago, the last weekend 
the exhibition was up, they brought their dad up here to to see the exhibition in person because we had, of course, sent them, you know, um, photos from it and all the articles about it. But they wanted a picture of their dad in front of that floor to ceiling image of their mom. So he came up, um, this 90 year old guy to stand in front of this photo of his late wife and uh, tour the exhibition and Jovelle Rennie, who, the photographer I talked about, who had pieces in the show, we um, hired him to take photos because we thought this is too special to do our on our phones. We've got to have great photos yeah. of this, of him coming up. And uh, yeah, it was great. And then because Jovelle had been an advisor, he could help give the tour of the exhibition, mm-hmm. which was great. So yeah, so I'm I'm really happy that that kind of fell together, and we have that collection now because his photos are really really great uh, in his collection. So now we have the Samuel Fleming collection in the archives. What an incredible situation! You know how yeah. <laughs> how serendipitous is yeah, that whole exactly. whole situation? Yeah, just great. Um, just great to have that connection with them. And, you know, now the collection is online. And so while they were here, we were showing it to them and um, they're really excited. They can, you know, share that link with family and friends all over. Mm-hmm. I think, And I think that was, you know, that's one, I mean, certainly with archival collections, but with the programs, you know, at first I was a little sad that these were all going to be virtual, but it ended up being amazing because some of the programs we had, there were people from all over the country who um, who participated and tuned in to these programs. We used um, Facebook Live or Crowdcast for the programs. So um, two of them, especially one, we had, you know, October is American Archives Month, and we had these black archivists from really prestigious institutions across the United States. And so they had all their colleagues tune in from all over the United States. And then we did one later, a program um, with Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority, their chapter here about the history of the Harlem Renaissance. And, you know, I'm sitting there looking at the attendee list and there are people from all over. So mm-hmm. even though, you know, I mean, there's the the silver lining in doing programs virtually is that you can engage people from outside of your community. When you consider all of the stories being told through these materials, you know, these archival photos, mm-hmm. what do you think is the long term benefit to the community? I think there are several benefits. One, just the fact of preserving this history, which is such a rich history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people still are surprised. There's black people in Alaska and they've been here that long, you know, because the exhibition went back to the 1800s. And um, so just making people, helping people be aware of that history and preserving it. Mm -hmm. And then I think just the sense of pride of seeing all the accomplishments um, that 
the black community is responsible for historically and now, you know, because the, the exhibition went all the way up to current day, current time. And um, to be able to share that with the rest of the community and and people who, you know, people may have just gotten here and they don't really know uh, the history of their community here. So I think it was, you know, a real service to the community in that way and engaging people in uh, personal collections. You know, on the second floor, we featured two collections from um, Black community members that have come into or in, are in the process of coming into the archives like the Fleming collection. Uh, mm-hmm. One was Ed Wesley's collection, who's been a business owner and activist here, um, a community, very active and knowledgeable community member here, um, and not just in Anchorage, but in other parts of Alaska. Uh, we had part. We had some materials from his collection um, in the display cases on the second floor, and then we we uh, switched that out kind of halfway through, and we had the collection of Eleanor Andrews, who um, has been a successful, very successful business owner in the community and active and philanthropist and. Um, you know, to be able to share that and encourage people to think, you know, how how are you documenting your history or your family's history? And here are some things you may think you're just an ordinary person, but when you really look back and see what you're accomplishing and how you're contributing to community, there's there's history worth saving there. There's yeah. there are yeah, there are life experiences worth documenting. And so I think um, there were multiple benefits and purposes of uh, constructing that exhibition the way it was to include that, uh, to encourage people and and help educate them about archives. What is an archives and what belongs in an archive? Um, So, um, yeah, I just, I think that exhibition helped the work we're trying to do just take off like a rocket ship, actually. Um, mm-hmm. And other communities saying, you know, other historically marginalized communities coming to the exhibition and saying to me, we need to do this about the Asian community, the Asian American community. We need to, we have a lot of history in the Philippinex community. We need to mm-hmm. do a program like this or uh, you know, have an exhibition like this about our history. And I want to get our things into the archives so that they're documented. So, you know, it was really kind of a blast off to what we're trying to do to make sure there's multiple perspectives in the story we're telling through the museum's archives. Yeah, that's incredible that that it can it can be its own thing, its own very powerful thing, but then mm-hmm. it also can be you know, like you said, like the accelerant mm-hmm. to showing the history of other other cultures in Alaska. Right, right. Yeah, it's yeah, it was just uh, it was just the way everything fell together has just been amazing. What do you think all of this tells us about Alaska and 
the people who live there and also like the values that they hold? I think it tells us there's lots of stories to be told and there are lots of perspectives um, that reflect how people experience this place, what they bring with them, um, what they contribute and how people make this a home, um, how people make this their home. Um, I think it says a lot about, you know, we, we, I hear this all the time is kind of bragging about how many languages are spoken in the schools and, you know, how, how diverse the city is or the municipality is, but some of that is not very visible to a lot of people. So I think it tells us that there are lots of stories that still need to be told. Mm -hmm. And um, there are a variety of ways for all of us to experience those and just know that our community is bigger than maybe what our, we've made our world here. Because I think anywhere you live, you can make your world pretty small. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if that's your tendency or if, if that's what you choose to do, but you can also make it really huge by getting to know more about your neighbors and where they came from, why they came here and what their life, what their lives have been like here. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's so many ways to experience this beautiful place. And I think archives and places like museums and libraries help make it possible to make your world larger and see things from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. Was there a point after you moved to Alaska where you began feeling like Alaska was home? Yeah. And I think it was after I had my daughter actually, because then I, you know, I had to research what schools for her to go to and, you know, how was I going to help her experience living here mm -hmm. um, and have good memories and have some adventures here. And I think it made me, you know, it's kind of like when a visitor comes to town yeah. and you and you go places that you forget you haven't been in a long time or you've never been, you know, and you take them to experience it. Um, I think that's when it started feeling um, like home, you know, when, mm -hmm. when I started trying to help her experience it and, and benefit from all the opportunities here. She went to, um, a Spanish immersion school. You know, she went to government Hill Spanish immersion program. And I, I thought that was just a good way for her world to be, you know, a little larger because, it had to be, it was 50% native Spanish speakers and 50% English um, as a first language speakers. And so she had that opportunity to interact with other cultures, you know, not just one Spanish speaking culture either. Mm -hmm. So I think um, I started learning more than about other communities and, you know, made sure she had that opportunity as well. Uh, because the schools are so diverse, 
depending on where you choose to have your kid in school, of course, but you know, you can be in a really diverse situation if that's something that interests you. And if you think it enriches your life, which I've always thought it does. Um, so yeah, I would say, but you know, she made everything feel, she made everything wonderful. So, um, you know, she made living here even more special too. How did you help your daughter experience Alaska? You know, what were those things on your list that you knew she needed to experience? Well, you know, I've never been really outdoorsy. I'm kind of indoorsy. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but living here pushes you to do things outdoors. Um, and so we made sure she knew how to ski. No, she, so she did cross country skiing and she ran, um, you know, she did running and, um, she knew how to ice skate. And so she experienced the outdoors, uh, more than I had as a kid. And, you know, camping, we didn't really do a lot of camping when I was growing up. And so we made sure she got to go camping and, um, you know, we would leave the city, no, leave Anchorage and go to other communities, to parks and do drives. And um, so that was another way besides making sure she was interacting with other people who had interests maybe we didn't have, but they could expose her to those. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I think if you work at it, you can do that for your kids. Um, you know, and if you have, you know, if, you know, we, I have to admit that, you know, there's privilege there. We could afford to make sure she did all those things. Um, and I think it's important to take advantage of that if you're able to do that. Do you think that if you wouldn't have had a daughter, your Alaska experience would have been a little narrower? Oh, definitely. Okay. I think, you know, cause you have patterns. Yeah, definitely. Things that, yeah, what's comfortable to you. And, you know, even though we talked earlier about me being flexible and having optimism, I'm not always comfortable pushing myself physically to do things that I haven't done before. Mm -hmm. So I didn't grow up um, doing cross-country skiing. We did, uh, I guess I did ice skating when I was a kid. Um, uh, But there are a lot of things that you do here that you may not do if you grew up in a, you know, Midwestern city environment. Mm -hmm. And so I, I hope I would have tried some, (laughs) I hope I would have been a little more, you know, a little more of a risk taker with the outdoor stuff. But I really think, um, she having her push me to do that. Cause I also didn't want her to pick up the fears that I have about heights or anything like that. I wanted Mm -hmm. her to, you know, so I may not have gone downhill skiing with her, but she had friends she could go (laughs) downhill (laughs) skiing with, you know, so I, I, um, you know, I just didn't want her to, I didn't want her to pick up on the patterns that I had. So, yeah, I think, um, I think if she weren't around, I may have tried some things, but I wouldn't have 
expose myself to as many things. And you recently decided to become a librarian and archivist, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I went back to school. um, And when I turned 60, I went back to school. I did a um, online program, which ended up being online for everyone mm-hmm. at University of Washington um, out of Seattle. Um, so uh, we started, it was a three-year program. And I had, you know, for a while, I it had been in the back of my mind that I wanted to work in a library. And I, in the beginning, I wanted to, I saw myself in a public library. I'm like, I want to be in a public library and I, I want to work with a diverse group of people, and I need a change. I don't want to retire doing philanthropy and development. I want to try at least one more thing. And, you know, the not too many shopping days till Christmas. I was about to turn <laughs> 60. And so I told my husband, I said, you know, if I'm going to try something new, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it now. And I've always thought about librarianship and that's what I'm going to do. And so I went back to school. It was a great program. I can't say enough good things about it. And then a position opened here um, in the archives um, involving outreach. And that was just a good mix of what I had learned and what I enjoyed in the philanthropy and development work. And so that kind of came together that this position came open when I was looking at library jobs and, you know, I love being at the museum. So I'm so glad I got to stay here and not leave, you know, to take a librarian position somewhere else. Um, So yeah, that was kind of serendipitous too, I guess, how that came together. Do you think that pursuing this new job at the museum, do you think that you could attribute it in any way to your daughter? You know, that that she helped you try all of these new things and experience Anchorage in a different way. And now that, you know, she's older, you're older, that sentiment is still with you. I never thought about it that way, but yeah, probably. I mean, she influences everything. You know, your kids just influence you um, and you learn, you learn as much as you teach and you are guided as much as you guide with kids. So, um, yeah, I'm sure that. And then I think the whole spirit here, uh, what I was saying before about that feeling of opportunity and, mm-hmm. you know, limitless in terms of what you might try. Um, and, you know, maybe it won't work out. Maybe it will. But there are people, there are also people all around you who are doing amazing things and trying new things and, so I think that's part of the influence of living here as well as, you know, um, my daughter exposing me to different things and me wanting to make sure she saw the bigger world. Mm-hmm. So 50 years, 100 years, 200 years from now, mm-hmm. when people look at the things you've helped put into the Anchorage Museum's archive, what do you hope people will learn from them? I hope they will learn that like every place, there are different ways of living and experiencing the same place. 
And that includes um, because of race, because of economics, because of um, you know where you came from and what you brought to this place. Um, and I hope that people will think about that wherever they are or wherever they travel, wherever they may live, that their way of experiencing something is not the only way or mm -hmm. the best way or the right way, and that um, they will be more open to the stories of others' lives and experiences and not see a place just from one perspective. That's wonderful. Yeah, I think that's that's my hope. Well, Julie, that does it for my questions. You know, this is, it's just been such an amazing conversation. Oh, great. This was fun. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? I don't think so. I think we covered everything. You know, I, I hope people know that just because the exhibition is closed, we're not going to stop helping um, tell stories from the Black community. And that, you know, any, any work the museum does there, the effort is there to make sure we're giving voice to multiple perspectives. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors. 